Thank you for listening. This is Brett Trainer, your host for Hardwired for Growth, a podcast where we strive to help entrepreneurs and business owners not only grow their businesses, but scale them. We do this by having conversations with industry experts and the entrepreneurs who have successfully scaled their own businesses. Statistics show that only 5% of all startups ever achieve annual revenue of a million dollars, and less than 1% reach 10 million. Our mission is to help more than double the number of companies that reach each of those thresholds. In episode six, I have a conversation with Forbes author and podcaster, Jim Vasilopoulos. Jim is the co-host of the very popular The Leadership Podcast. To date, Jim and his co-host, Jan Rutherford, have interviewed over 157 of the world's top leaders. In addition, Jim's also a frequent speaker, author, and also runs an advisory firm where he works with CEOs and business owners. In this episode, Jim shares his key learnings and what skills current and future CEOs will need to develop in order to successfully lead their organization, and why empathy will be the single most important attribute. Now, on to the intro. Welcome back. You're listening to Hardwired for Growth, a podcast dedicated to helping entrepreneurs and business owners who are looking for sustainable and scalable growth strategies, led by your host, Brett Trainer. Hey, Jim. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. I know we've been talking about this, and actually, you were one of the, the, the first folks that didn't guide me down to the path of the podcast, but you know, with, with your success... What are you at 151 episodes on your podcast now? Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, we've recorded probably 160 some and it's just, it's flown by. It's fantastic. I love it. It's one of my favorite podcasts and I'll, in the show notes, I'll have our listeners able to track it down. But if you're interested in what you all should be as entrepreneurs in leadership, it's, you know, one of the ones I can highly, highly recommend. Yeah, so. Jim, one of the, the things I like to get started with is rather than job descriptions or you know titles, if you could tell our audience if you met them at a cocktail party, what is it that you do? Yeah, well, I mean, if it's a cocktail party introduction, part of it is is like, is it a cocktail party I want to be at? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Because you might end up having some fun with that introduction. But um, you know, typically, very briefly, I'll tell people, you know, I've been very fortunate and blessed to have some success in my life. And now I'm a business consultant and executive coach, and I help other people find their success. And that's what uh, you know really feeds my soul and is something I love doing. And it's I'll probably do until you know I'm not able to do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And that's one of the reasons I started this too was, you know, it's just something I've always wanted to do, right? So hopefully the audience will grow and continue to grow, but just to have conversations with folks like you is is the uh, the reward for itself. So one of the reasons I really, really wanted you on the show is there's a couple of different paths we can take. One is the podcast, right? So 151 episodes with some, you know, between military, academic, authors, speakers, you know, sharing their you know, their experience with leadership traits and, you know, what makes good leaders. You know, I'd like to start down that path and, you know, what's your biggest takeaway from, you know, 151 episodes with, like I said, some of the top thinkers in, in leadership. Yeah, it's been really interesting. And, um, you know, I think we had the good opportunity. I, I co-host the show, the leadership podcast with Jan Rutherford, a, a buddy of mine. And, and so we were asked to speak at, uh, for the Air Force a few months back. And we were going to talk about, we did a session on like, what are our biggest takeaways at the time after interviewing yeah. over a hundred leaders? 
And the thing that really stood out, there were a couple things that stood out with us. Uh, one of them was uh, leaders, you know, are just super curious. And the curiosity is just this really powerful thing that feeds uh, lifelong learning. It feeds empathy towards other people because it, if you're curious, you know, say what motivates this person? You know, what is, you know, how can I, what's making them think? How are they thinking through this problem? And so we really found that a, a common trait among the more successful leaders was curiosity. And so that was a really cool one. Another one was just, um, you know, just having, um, I think, you know, really strong values, knowing where you want to go, you know, not just trying to do things for other people's motivations or other people's needs, but saying, I have an internal compass and vision and saying, I know where I want to go and where I want to take people and being able to paint that vision for others so that you could have a collective sharing of those ideas. Those were like two really profound kind of thought processes. There's so many more, but the one thing that I thought was really interesting is we used to ask, we stopped asking it after a while, but like, what is the true measure of leadership? If you could measure it, how would you measure it? And we kind of came on the thing where it's like, it's really hard to measure. It's like, how do you measure the success of a marriage or something like that? You can't put a number on it. But um, I do think that ultimately the measure of a leader is their legacy and how many leaders they create. And so when you're looking at someone, it's not maybe necessarily that person's individual accomplishments, but the people who they led and they mentored and they helped educate, what were their accomplishments? And that's really a, gives you a different perspective on things. Those were some of the takeaways after talking to all these folks. Yeah, that's, I'd like to go back to the one that you mentioned, which was empathy, right? I think that, I think that's an underrated portion of this. I mean, I think that I've spent half, more than half my career in the corporate world, right? Where empathy, the really good leaders had it, but it really wasn't expected, right? If that makes sense. Where I think we're heading in the world now, whether it's a small business or even, you know, in, in larger companies, developing that skill of empathy is, I think, is one of the more critical pieces of it. Yeah, it's a huge differentiator. And, you know, if you take a look at even like the statistics about why people quit their jobs, usually money's a lot further down on the list than anything else. And usually they say people quit their boss before they quit their job. And if you've got a boss who cares about you, who is interested in you and what makes you tick and what's important in your life and not just your work life, but your, your whole life you know, that only happens when someone's got some empathy for you. And so it just makes everything easier. You know, if you, if you, if you care about people and it makes work less work. Right. It's actually part, you know, one of the, I've heard, I had someone on earlier in the show talking about, you know, building the culture, right. As the company's going from hustle to scale, you know, how do I bring that culture? If you're, you know, a one person shop, you know, you're, you are, you're the character, the culture, and basically the mission of what you want with the company. And what she was talking about was to be able to scale that it's critical. You get people, you know, get all the smartest people in the room, but if they don't agree on the direction and the mission of the company, then it's, there's a, you're going to fail, right. Or a much greater chance of failing. Yeah. And I think even for a one person company, you know, it, it's just having some direction, having some focus and saying, this is what drives me. This is why I make decisions. This is when I say yes, this is when I say no. And, and so, um, you know, little simple things that let's say guide my decision-making now at this point in my career with my business and now having led other businesses where there were more people, it's like, it's just me now. 
And, you know, one of my tenants is, is if someone's going to end up on my calendar and I'm looking at my week ahead on a Sunday night or, and saying, here's what my week looks like. And I see an appointment on my calendar and I go, uh, <laughs> meeting. Um, I, shouldn't be doing business with that person or I shouldn't be meeting with that person. I, I want to be excited about everyone I meet with. And so that is one of the filters I would use to just say as a one person shop. And it's really a cultural value I've got is I want to really love every discussion I have and I want to be able to give a hundred percent to it. And I want to really embrace that. And if I'm not going to enjoy those interactions, I'm not saying that person's bad. They're just not right for me. Right. Right for someone else. And that's okay. There's a lot of business to go around. That is so true. I know it's, it's one of those things I wish I would have learned earlier in life is, you know, life is too short. So you can't spend it in doing things you don't like to do or want to do. Now you still have to pay the bills, but, you know, to go follow, you know, what you want to do and hopefully you're good at it. I can't remember where I saw or what podcast I was listening to, but it wasn't just to follow your passion, but it's, you tend to be happiest when you're doing something you're naturally good at. So having a now, you know, one daughter in the, the workplace, you know, two years in, and she's starting to find her way through the world. It's just my, the advice I'm giving her is very different than, you know, if any advice I received is I was starting to make my way into the world. And it's, you know, do what you're good at, and, and you're going to be much happier in life than trying to. And I think a, it's kind of a long-winded answer, but, you know, one of the, the other pieces of advice I heard is, you know, and, and, immediately eliminate everything you don't like to do and then go figure out the things you might like to do. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you're always going to be more productive working on things you enjoy. And you know, that's half of procrastination is I don't like doing that stuff that I'm procrastinating on. There's always going to be tough stuff you've got to do, but if you, if the main goal, if the main thrust of everything you're doing, um, like, you know, Hey, I like coaching. I like helping people. I like giving business advice. That's awesome. So that's the main thrust of what I do. Do I like doing expense report receipts? No, but I got to do it. And it's, you know, that one's like more work to outsource than it is just to get it done. So, you know, there's always something that is a little bit miserable, but if the main thrust of what you're working on is really centered on something that feeds your soul, the whole, all the questions people have about work-life balance become a lot less important because work and life are a little more aligned. Right, right. And I had read that not too long ago, that it was, you know, the industrial revolution that kind of forced human beings into a nine to five job at a desk that they didn't like prior to that. You were a blacksmith, you were a a hunter, you were a farmer, and Mm -hmm. it just was who you are. And I think we're starting to see a little bit of that now. You know, I, I can't remember, I think it's us 3.69 million more in the, the gig economy now, right? So they're, they are who they are and they're working the way they want to work. And it wouldn't surprise me. And I do believe that it's, it's heading back to that, that you, to your, to your point, it's not a work-life balance. It's, it's just who you are. Yeah. We kind of, uh, we're really adaptable creatures. And so we kind of deal with these massive changes in creative ways and I think the gig economy is one of these creative ways that we're adapting. The, the funny thing is, is we like to think, I think very falsely that we're evolving, you know, yeah. that, oh, humans are evolving. The reality is we're not evolving. Come on. You know, I wouldn't have an appendix if we were evolving. You know, <laughs> it, it, we evolve very, very slowly. It will happen imperceptibly to any of us. But the world around us is fantastic. I mean, just think about like, you know, the inventions we've seen in our lives and just my grandparents before me, you know, they were before cars or anything. 
you know, so the culture that changed with the industrial revolution and factories and all that stuff, we're now in this kind of internet information age and people are still, we're at the very, very beginning of dealing with socially how, what that means to everything and how we're adapting. And then I think the gig economy is one of these things that's happening is a reaction to this change in society. And it may not be the end state, but it's just one of these intermittent states that we're going through as we learn to cope better. Yeah, I'd agree. And I heard someone use the analogy that we're heading towards like a movie production, right? Everybody's got their specialty. They're good at what they do. We all come together for a 12 or 18 month project. And then we go out and do whatever's next on our list. And I thought that was a pretty good analogy for, we're not there yet, but I, we're heading that way. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting. And I know, you know, you help people with sales. I help people with sales. The one thing that's hardest for people to do when they're like going off on their own, you know, and they're always like, oh, I'm, I've got an expertise in this. I got an expertise in this. I said, do you have an expertise in sales? No. I'm like, do you have any interest in learning how to sell at all? No, not at all. I never want to sell. I said, then don't go off on your own. Yeah, right. Part of another organization because no one's going to sell. You know, the business doesn't come to you. And that's the one thing I think people don't understand is the business never comes to you. Might not be hard to find if you look in the right spots, but it never comes to you. And right. so, you know, that's one of those things that I think is going to be a big boost for probably guys like you and me who help people learn how to sell. Yeah. No, I think you're hundred percent right. And I joke that sales has finally caught up to me, right? Cause you think back in the 20 years ago, the used car salesman, pushy, you know, demanding the sale, scare attack. That just wasn't me. It's more about, you know, selling with value and Hey, if you want to do business, great. If not, here's what we have to offer. So I'm much more comfortable in that type of environment versus the old school. So maybe I'm adapter. Maybe the world's adapting to my sales skills versus. <laughs> no, you know, maybe the world is, but I firmly believe that there was some person in the you know Roman Forum two thousand plus years ago that was selling olives or something like that that sold exactly the way you sell. And it was like, oh, everyone knows Nick. Nick's a great guy, you know. <laughs> uh, Nick will help you out. He's got the best olive oil. He'll always give you a good deal. You know, you know, he's a good guy. You can trust him. His word is good. And it's the same sales strategies that worked then that work today. You know, people have an affinity for, you know, people who are authentic. And we're seeing that, you know, as a very prominent display of what makes a good leader or what makes a good company. We want people who are authentic people who keep their promises and keep their word, who we can trust, that have values that are consistent, you know, so people really resonated with, you know, Google's do no evil or whatever it is, but that means a lot. Or brands now like Patagonia that talk about, you know, we're about saving the environment. And so all those values that are, you know, some like, oh, this is the new way of doing business. They were really popular a long time ago too. It's just, I think people are less afraid to talk about it. Right. No, I think that's right. And I think buyers are less willing to put up with the other tactics, right? They're changing. I don't want to buy from somebody I don't trust. Yeah. And that's one of the things, you know, spending a lot of the time in the B2B world, right? The, the sales model has shifted where it used to be heavily focused on the aggressive frat boys and you know, inside sales. It's how many calls can I make and how many conversations where, you know, the way I kind of describe it now, it's more of a customer concierge, right? If you're really doing it right, somebody's coming to 
you know, engage with you, whether it's digitally or on, on the phone. And they're looking for you to guide them through that journey. And I think you still have the most success when you approach it that way. How am I adding value to this customer as they go through the process? Not me trying to sell more. The one thing that I don't think you can lose is that DNA, or maybe you can learn it, is to ask for the sale, right? You've helped the customer there. At some point, though, do you trust me enough? Can I, have I earned your business? And you still have to ask for it <laughs> most of the time. It, it's easier to ask if you've provided the value through that process. But you know, at some point, I think to your earlier point of if you don't like to sell, you really don't have to sell. But at some point, you got to ask the customer for their money. Well, I mean, the real crux of that ask for the sale is why do people not ask for the sale? It's not because it's like they don't have the guts to do that. It's usually because they fear the answer. And, you know, you have to be at a place of self-confidence as a seller to be able to say, I, it's okay if someone says no. You know, not everyone has to say yes. So you have to get over that fear that just says, yeah, occasionally. It's, it's like, I always say like when Michael Jordan, who had like a great field goal, field goal percentage in basketball, went to baseball, he was going from a sport where you might be successful like 60% of the time to a sport where if you're successful 30% of the time, you're a rock star. And that's a real tough mentality to, to dig into. And so great salespeople, you know, they're okay here and no, and it doesn't damage their ego. It doesn't like say, oh, I'm taking that as a personal affront or anything like that. And so a lot of times these psychological things we put in front of us is like, it's more rooted in like, I don't like rejection. I take it too personally. And a lot of great sellers struggle with that because they're so personally invested in, in the relationship. They're personally invested in the time they put and they care so much that losing a deal feels like it's, it's really painful. But you know, that's one of those things where intellectually you just have to separate yourself from that because it's baseball. You're going to lose a lot. It's okay. Exactly. Yeah. One a unique, maybe twist on that is uh, my daughter, who's now in the workplace, she worked for an internship at the trunk club. And if you're familiar, the listeners are familiar with it, but it's really, you go down once they get all your sizes and basically once a month, they're putting a package together of clothes for you. And so you don't have to worry really geared towards men. And the funny thing is, as she was going through the process, she was completely fine with the, the cold calls and the follow-ups with people that had inquired. But when it came to reaching out to her network, which was basically my network, she was very uncomfortable with that. She's like, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm selling and, I'm like, you're not, you're, you're providing a service and there's value to it. And if they don't see the value, then don't, don't worry about it. And it was kind of an aha moment for her that said, Hey, okay, that makes, that makes sense. As long as you, that's the way I think you got to look at it. And I'm trying to encourage everybody to stop, you know, stop saying sales, right? (laughs) You're trying to support the buying process. And I think, you know, the example, uh, Brandon Mateka, who is, who's on the show a couple of weeks ago in the market. He's all about the product market fix and he's works with customer small companies or growing companies like you. And he just had one company that he made one small change in. all they did was change the title of their sales reps from sales to market researchers and drove the business 24% doing nothing else other than changing the perception of when people were calling in that it wasn't a either inbound or outbound, that it wasn't a sales call. It was market research. Well, there's a ton of neuroscience that goes into just these small changes. But if you think about it, and this is really, it dovetails so well with the sales training I do, because I tell people, I say, stop selling, support the buying process, because 
when you are selling or being sold to, there's something that happens in your body where cortisol starts building up and that's the stress hormone. And it it's really initiates your fight or flight reflex. And you don't want anyone to be there in a relationship. I mean, that's just, and a sale is a relationship that you want to build. But if you get someone to buy and you switch your mentality to the, to the buying mindset, that when you buy, when you purchase, when you hit a click, you know, buy on Amazon, you get an endorphin rush. And that's exactly where we want people to be. Now, if they were looking to buy something, they were, you know, let's at least work with the positive emotions, the positive, you know, brain chemistry rather than the negative brain chemistry. So what you want to do is just, you know, make sure you're fishing in the right pond for the kind of people who would be interested in buying what you need, that there, there's going to be a value fit, and then just help facilitate the buying process where people's endorphins are kicking in, they're feeling good, everyone's happy, and they're getting something of value. And as long as you're honest and you've got some virtue in what you do and you're providing something that's going to give them value, there's nothing wrong with doing it the way that is less of a struggle, that's more fun and enjoyable for everyone. Uh, without a doubt. And you know, the, the example I used, I don't know, the last time you had bought or leased a, a car, right? That then maybe it's just certain dealerships or certain places, but I had two very different experiences with two very different dealers. The one guy was giving me the features and the benefits, right? And saying why this was the best car, best, best car. The other dealer I went to, he was just there to really support me through the process. How do I get him in and out of here? You know, hey, there's some cool features that we have this. Have you thought about that? But it was very low key, right? And it wasn't, I didn't feel pressured or nervous or on the edge because is he going to try to sell me on something now? You know, I said, I'm not quite ready to make a decision. He didn't say, all right, just give me a call when you're ready. And it was such a positive experience. I bought two cars from him now over the past what five, five years, but you know, it just changed the mindset. I had a very negative of one dealership and then a very positiveness. And it was just one, one guy, one person within that org. So I don't know if it was intentional or if that's just the way he is. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's tough to get a whole organization to be intentional in that perspective. And, but you know, that's part of my mission, what I'm trying to do when I work with companies, but, um, individually, you can find usually when they say like 20% of your salespeople make 80% of the sales, what you'll find is those 20% typically operate in that fashion. You know, the, the big sellers typically operate in a fashion where they build these relationships. They're really good at helping people. People feel like, you know, very close to that salesperson. And they may even say, well, if you got a new job somewhere, Sally, you know, I, I'll go wherever you go because I'm loyal to you. And, um, you know, that's powerful stuff, but it's such a simple mindset change. It's a very simple thing, but it's exceptionally powerful. So that, you know, statistics you quoted earlier from that one firm doesn't surprise me. My guess is though it was more than just changing the name of the title. It was saying, now that you have this new title, let's look at what you do differently. And um, if you look at the way you do differently and have a different sentiment and the way you approach the problem, that's probably where the biggest change came. But you know, the title changes are markers of some underlying change as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I was actually talking to a colleague of mine today, and she does some work with um, call centers, but it could be inbound or inside sales type of an approach. And she was working with the retailer, and 
they probably 50% of their business was coming through this inbound and with people picking up the calls and helping the customers close the deal. And she made the mistake of calling them salespeople. And you, you, you would have thought the way she described it, you, you shot their dog, right? We're not salespeople. That's not what we do. And they, they didn't want that, you know, designation as, as part of the process. So I think you're, you're absolutely right on, on just, it's the overall, the overall approach, I think. Right. Yeah. And you know what? I, I've gone almost 360 on this one. So it's kind of, you know, a full circle mentality. I started off like hating salespeople, you know, but I was a salesperson. I didn't want to call myself a salesperson, but you know, I had a business, I was selling my stuff and, and I hated salespeople. I hated hiring them. I hated managing them, the whole deal. And I would not want to deal with anyone who had the title sales. And then as my business grew and we brought in some outside help that really helped us kind of reframe our understanding of many things and really take some assumptions off the table. There's a guy by the name of Ford Harding came in. Um, he's like the godfather of rainmaking. And um, he's just, he's a great guy. I owe him an enormous debt of gratitude. And he said, uh, Jim, you know, because we were had a consulting company at the time, he goes, the highest art form of consulting is sales. He goes, your job is to go out there and give tons of value in the sales process for free to give people a taste of what it's going to be like to work with you later once they decide to compensate with you and compensate you for that. And, you know, you have to do it quickly. You have to do it well. You have to establish instant rapport. The consulting that you do in a sales process is just, it's the finest. It's the most acutely honed. And that's why you should never be ashamed to be a salesperson. And I really went and I said, yeah, I proudly would wear that title. I, I wouldn't even tell my people. I, I wouldn't change their titles at this point. But what I would say is you got to approach it differently. And it's even okay to tell people, say, I'm going to approach this differently with you. But have people feel it rather than say it. And I think that's a real big thing about being authentic. It's You can say whatever you want. You know, right. you can say, our product's the best. Ours is the fastest. Our, our people are the best. You know, and, and those are just words anyone can use. But when you really feel it through the experience you convey with someone, that's when people say, I'm going to buy into what you're saying. I'm going to pick up what you just put down. And uh, that is, uh, Ford Harding really got me to think differently about salespeople. So that title doesn't really scare me anymore. In fact, I'm, I, I don't mind a good salesperson. The problem is there are a lot of bad salespeople. Right. There's no doubt. And, and just to maybe tie off on this with, with, with my last corporate role, we had inside, outside, enterprise, and even some you know, inbound, outbound, BGEN, BDR, SDR type roles. And we had just a wide disparity of success, right? So the people that were good were really good and everybody else was kind of stuck or struggling. So what I did, I just went out and one, listened to their calls and two, interviewed them on, you know, what, what makes you successful. And I think the three biggest takeaways was I know the vertical I'm calling into, I know their business and I'm their trusted advisor. So I think if you, I think that's good advice for the audience too, is if you are starting to scale your business or trying to expand, know the verdict you're calling in. So if you're in plumbing and just no plumbing to jump, to start trying to go after lawyers is a 
big jump. So know the vertical you're calling into and become that, that advisor to, to those folks. And if you can get the rest of your team to start thinking that way, it doesn't have to be super formal, but a change in approach that, that you had mentioned was, you know, it was amazing. It was really eye-opening because it was over 160 reps that we had, but the ones that had figured it out, they weren't buying from the company. They were buying from this individual. Yeah, one of the really interesting things that's come out of, let's say, all the podcasts that we've done is uh, the guy I co-host with is former Green Beret, really cool guy. And so we've had a lot of special operations folks on the uh, on the program. And the one group that really fascinates me are the Green Berets in large part because they have this unique role in the military that's like part diplomat, part military advisor, part trainer, part you know, combat veteran. I mean, they need to be able to handle tough situations. So they're the first people we usually send over overseas to deal with conflict areas when they say like, oh, so-and-so had advisors are in the country. It's usually like Green Berets. Okay. And they have this tough job of going over there, usually with a small group of people with, you know, completely outnumbered with usually a ridiculously difficult task. And they have to build trust and rapport very quickly. And you have to go in a country where you're not familiar with the culture. You have some familiarity, but you know, still there's stuff you don't know. And you have to build trust and rapport very quickly. You have to go in and try and understand their world in ways that is meaningful to them. So they're upset with us. Why are they upset with us? And, you know, we might here in the States say it's like something political or, you know, ascribe it to something that's massive. It might be as simple as, you know what, something happened and their well got destroyed and now they have to walk further to get clean water. And so these guys, instead of saying, hey, let's, you know, talk to you about all this political stuff, they don't care about that. They say, dig us a new well and they dig them a new well and they, everyone's happy. They're like, oh yeah, we like the Americans. They dig us, dug us a new well. <laughs> and um, so it, it's really understanding that culture. So where I want to drive with this is even if you go to a new industry you can't know everything about them. Because if I had sent someone over there and said, oh, I want you to know about all these Pashtun you know, history and you could go read all the history books and know the history better than they do, you're still not going to know their world. But you have to be open to the idea. You have to have that empathy that says, I want to understand if I'm going in from plumbing to healthcare, you know, what's the terminology? What's the language you speak? So I sound like you. That's what they do. They do a ton of language training. What is important to you? What drives your success in healthcare versus what drives your success in plumbing? And just understanding these basic things to establish how do you win and what is it the, what's the stuff that you care about and you're sensitive to? And it's the same skill you would have in sales going into a different industry or even a different region. Like, oh, you know, Brett, you know, you've been great in Chicago. We're giving you St. Louis now. And just, you have to understand what's different about St. Louis. And, you know, it's these little sensitivities that I think they do actually a great job of training within the military to have them be exceptionally adaptable. And that stuff really applies well to any sales team. Yeah, I completely agree. And what a great job of bringing us back to the beginning, right? Where we talked about the key leadership was super curious. So being able to listen and understand empathy and, and strong values. So I think that's a great way to segue from maybe leadership. And I do want to take a few minutes with you with your other part of the business, which is working with 
I'm sure you worked with all sizes of companies, but really what I'd like, you know, maybe some key takeaways from, from your business on companies that were looking to, to scale their business, right? They were maybe growing nicely or they plateaued, you know, what were some of the key things that helped them grow the business and maybe a couple things to uh, avoid, right? As they're, they're starting to take this journey. Yeah. I mean, I think the easy place to, you know, have a lot of the discussion is like, oh, let's talk about sales issues when you talk about scaling, but let's just table that for a second. Forget about it. Cause we could talk all day about stuff like that. I think some of the issues that you look at when you're dealing with scale is we think we have to, we, we worked so hard to get this far and to get further, we need to work harder. And scaling is not about you know, necessarily just working harder and adding more people. Sometimes you just need to look at the problem and redefine it differently. And so what works for a $1 million company might not work for a 5 or $10 million company, will definitely not work for a $20 million company, will definitely not work when you're scaling to $100 million. And so you need to tab, you know, recognize these inflection points and say, what is it that we need to look at to redesign this process that's going to fit our next phase? And sometimes those are executives that need help with delegation because, you know, they've used to being like, you know, a, a player coach. And now it's like, you got no more playing days. Your playing days are over. You need to coach. There's a lot more going on here. Sometimes it's cultural issues because you used to have a problem that was small enough to manage and you could have enough hands-on executive presence to be able to say to correct problems and it, the problem gets big enough much like with the military when you know the the wars got really big and Stan McChrystal wrote the book Team of Teams it was like the problem got too big so he had to give people smaller a more strict definition of like what their right and left limits were so they could make their own decisions and they could operate and know that we were all still pointed roughly in the same direction and so Shared vision, shared values, left and right limits, which you know we would call like commander's intent, and then really giving people the understanding that what got you here won't get you there. So you may need to delegate more. You may need to do less. You may need to turn yourself in from a an athlete into a coach and a teacher, and that's a tough transition for a lot of folks. And then you know all the sales issues that go into growth, but you know yeah. that's, that's what everyone talks about. Right. And maybe we can take a, just a little bit of a step back and dig a little deeper because a lot of the, uh, the folks I'm working with right now are maybe a solo shop, right? So they've basically been so successful, they're at capacity and then they just stop, right? They don't know what to do next. So I, maybe just focus, this could be you know, a little bit larger of a company too. But when you're starting to think about expanding, you know, one of the, my mantras is, you know, stick with what you're good with, right? <laughs> it played your strength type of an mm -hmm. approach and then look to hire maybe deficiencies or where the gaps or where the opportunities are. So I'd love your perspective on, you know, to that point where there's a lot of these folks that get to this point with really good ideas and businesses, they just get paralyzed at that next step. So I love your perspective on, you know, how do we help those people? Well, sure. But, you know, even if you're an only a solo shop, you have other people that you pay, you know, you have your assistants, you have people who do all kinds of different things for you. And so some of the best advice I was ever given was only do what only you can do. And so if you really focus on that, you know, um, there's a reason why, you know, I stopped cutting the lawn years ago and it was not that I actually kind of liked it, 
it was like one of these relaxing things I enjoyed doing. But at a certain point, it's like I can get other people to do that and other people can't do what I'm doing over here. So I'm going to stop doing that. So only do what only you can do. And that's a really good mantra to apply in your business. And, you know, beyond that, even in the solo shop, what I would say, and this, you know, might sound like completely uh, terrible, but, you know, okay, do what's most profitable. Okay. So you might say, I kind of sold out. I'm at capacity and I'm selling my product at this price or my service at this price. Um, Double the price, (laughs) you know? Great not. Great. But if you think about it, if you double the price and, you know, a bunch of people say no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, right, right. you close one out of four, it's okay. You're doing fine. And you'll okay? find that sweet spot. I think that's so true because so many people underprice or undervalue the work that they actually do and, you know, will discount just to get the, the business versus sticking to, hey, I know the value that I can provide. And, you know, I like that advice of keep doubling it until you can't. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you're going to hit a sweet spot. You're going to be making good income and um, you're going to find the people who really value you. And, uh, you know, you're going to hit a limit when maybe you hit a point where it's like, okay, I've, I've gone too far or maybe I don't think I can go further. And then I challenge you to say, maybe you need to talk to different people. And that is really where you need to think non-linearly. You can't just, you know, the most successful entrepreneurs, the most successful business people don't think in the box, but yet we go for advice and all the advice sometimes comes in a box. Right, right. And so so I'd say, you know, oh, I don't think I can raise my price anymore. Are you talking to the right people? You know, maybe you need to talk to different people. I'm not saying the people up until now are the wrong people, but to go to the next level, maybe you need to talk to different people. And people go, well, who would that be? Well, that's worth thinking about. That's worth spending some time on. And so if you look at the gig economy and solopreneurs or people who have like small businesses, pricing is usually almost always the first thing I go after. I'm like, yeah, you're you're too low. Double your price. It's not just like, let's raise it 10%. Double it. And, you know, if you double the price, you can still lose a bunch of sales and still come out ahead. Yeah, Yeah. that's so true. And then you will get to that sweet spot where the market values what you can do and you can then start to build around that. No, that's that's great. But I think a lot of, you know, high growth VC back companies really struggle with the the pricing aspect, especially in the SaaS space of, you know, they, they launch at a price they think, but they never really play with it to find that sweet spot. And they get to a point where, we're now too low. We're on a, you know, a faster track to bankruptcy or running out of funding because they never adjusted those prices. So no, I think that that's, that's great advice. So Jim, I want to be respectful of, of your time. So a lot of really good insights, which I appreciate, but I'd like to close with our, our, our closing time rapid round. So our folks sure. know you a little bit. So if you're game, you ready to go, ready to go. All right. So first, what do you like to do when you're not helping businesses grow? I'm a family man. So most of the stuff I do centers around if it's not work, it's family. And then uh, one of the passions of mine as well is to support veterans. And so I'm very big on supporting our veterans and the people who have served our country. And uh, for anyone who is willing to take a bullet so that I can enjoy the liberties and the freedoms and the opportunities we have in our great country, I'm willing to give back and help. So I do a lot of work with our veterans. That's awesome. And more people should. So thank you for that. Uh, second, what is one thing, it could be anything, you would highly recommend? 
Yeah, I, I, that's a tough one. Um, I'd say reading. I don't think enough people read and read stuff that's longer than a tweet or longer than a blog. <laughs> Amen. Um, read a lot of books. Um, and leaders are readers. And um, uh, I just, I don't think we have enough people reading these days because I hear some stupid stuff. And, uh, you know, Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle wrote on this stuff. If you just read a little bit of history, these problems have been solved. They've been dealt with. But yet we're we're growing in our ignorance. It bothers yeah. me. No, I think that's absolutely true. And one of my other guests actually said continuous learning, right? So mm-hmm. I found myself the last two, three, probably the last couple of years really starting to consume more data and learn and you know, research. And I think it's I think it gets stale if you don't. Or what'd you say, dumbing rapidly dumbing down or yeah, but I think that's so true. Yeah. hundred percent. All right. And last call, what is your drink or beverage of choice? Are we talking in general or alcoholic? <laughs> Whatever you want. I was just curious. Uh, to see. I mean, if you see my on any given day, cause I, I, my, my heavy drinking days are over, you know, you'll see me drinking either black coffee or water, but if I'm uh, out having a, having a beverage, I'll take the advice of an old sales uh, mentor of mine, Joel Kirsch, who said uh, that Vasilopoulos you're out drinking with clients, you're going to drink one of two things, only two things. I said, well, what's that, Joel? And he goes, you're either going to drink scotch or you're going to drink Guinness beer. I said, why is that? He says, no one will ever ask you to chug a Guinness. And you can sip a Guinness all night long while everyone else has plenty of drinks. And he goes, no one will ever ask you to do a shot of scotch. And you can sip a scotch all night long while everyone else has a great time. And it proved to be sage advice. I acquired a taste for Guinness and scotch. And if I'm out at a party, you will see me with one in my hand. And it may be the same one near the end of the night. <laughs> that may be some of the greatest advice I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, I wish I would have heard that you know, 25 years ago in my sales career, but it makes a lot I of hear you. That's probably a good way to, to close. Is there anything else you want to discuss before we wrap this up? No, thank you for what you're doing. Appreciate it. Um, the more people we have out there helping people thrive and grow in, in, in our country is, is great. So I wish you all the best. Congratulations on the podcast. And uh, I look forward to collaborating with you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. And lastly, if anybody's interested in learning more about you, I'll have links in the show notes. What's the best way to get in contact with you? Best way to get a hold of me is go to my website. It's Rafti, R-A-F-T-I, advisors.com. So RaftiAdvisors.com. And our podcast is at theleadershippodcast.com. Yeah, and as I had mentioned at the start, highly recommended. I mean, leadership is everything. And if you're running your own company or just in life, it's there's a lot of really good guests. I think the last one I saw was, who is your, oh, no, I'm drawing a blank, episode 150. Uh, Alden Mills, uh, yes. former Navy SEAL, great entrepreneur, you know, um, really great episode. Yeah, I highly recommend that. You and I were talking before we started. That's been one of your favorite, more recent ones, at least, right? Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. one I'll make my kids listen to. That's awesome. Well, again, thank you, Jim. I uh, really appreciate it and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Brett. All the best. Thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Hardwired for Growth. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit brettrainer.com. That's B-R-E-T-T, followed by his last name, T-R-A-I-N-O-R dot com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.